I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And welcome to this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman, and joining me today are two fantastic guests. James C. Jones is a creative entrepreneur. You might have heard his podcasts, heard his music over the years, and he's joining us today as we have a conversation about race, about Black Lives Matter, and what our community needs to know. Our other important guest today is Dr. Diane McAdams-Jones. Dr. Jones is a professor at Utah Valley University and a wonderful teacher. So I'm very, very humbled to have you both on the show today. Uh, and as I start with the big question, as, as we have seen Black Lives Matter protests, not only across the nation, but here in Utah, it appears to be polarizing our community as people try to grapple with issues of racism and its effects on black Americans. So I'm turning to you, both of you, to help guide this conversation today. First of all, and I'll go to you, James, first, if that's okay. Why yeah. are these Black Lives Matters protests happening, and why are they so important? Uh, okay. Um, like, we could really spend the entire time here just talking about this one thing, but if you're looking for a perhaps a singular word to explain why this is happening, that word, I would think, is injustice. Like, uh, Black Lives Matter as a movement has always been about recognizing the dignity, the value, the humanity inherent in the black body. This mission primarily exists because our systems of law enforcement and criminal justice have communicated otherwise. Uh, Hundreds of unarmed black people have been killed by law enforcement officials under questionable circumstances over the last several years. The arrests have been very few and the number of convictions even fewer than that. I could actually count those on one hand. Uh, the lack of accountability we've seen, as well as the lack of action as we have sought redress for these injustices through every legal means over several decades. That's why we're here. Uh, yeah, there are some things different about this particular moment that we're experiencing in history. You know, we've experienced a high concentration of ho- high profile deaths of unarmed black people that exists in our country. Um, we have, and, you know, the pandemic has also made more plain the racial and economic injustices that exist. And yes, George Floyd's death was particularly egregious considering how, when, and where he died. All of that certainly has something to do with uh, this flashpoint that we're at right now. But none of this is new. None of this has happened overnight. None of this exists in a vacuum. We're here and these protests are happening because our law enforcement institutions regularly communicate to us that we as black people are expendable. When they kill us, uh, that's communicated. 
Uh, when they kill us and no one is held accountable, that's communicated. And when they kill us, no one is held accountable and nothing changes. That's communicated. These protests are happening because this pattern of dehumanization of black bodies keeps happening. Protest is simply another means of drawing attention to that. And sorry, I already forgot the second part of that question. <laughs> I'm going to go to your mom because, uh, and I appreciate that. Okay. Um, uh, <laughs> Dr. Jones, what role do these protests place, play in making societal change? And, and as I ask you that question, I do want to say that Dr. Jones lived in Georgia as a young woman. And so you saw the very active um, civil rights uh, protests that were occurring in the 60s and lived through that. So I kind of want to segue from there. So what role do you see the protests playing, Dr. Jones, for the larger community that may not have been as sensitive or aware of the injustices that black Americans were experiencing in the criminal justice system and, and, and throughout the country? So, Rebecca, I would agree with James 100 percent. But as you mentioned, I came from Georgia and South Carolina, from the cotton field. I am nearly seven decades into this, and people in my age group can relate to what I'm about to say. In 1963, children from Parker High School were brought out to protest because all of the adults who were protesting had been jailed. So the Birmingham jails were packed. So Dr. King brought out the children. And Bull Connor, who was the safety commissioner, right away sent fire hoses and police dogs on those children. And the reason, Rebecca, is because black lives don't matter. Connor inflicted brutality right away. But when it came to the 16th Street church in Birmingham that was bombed and four little girls were killed, it took years before anyone was brought to justice. In 1977 was the first one man brought to justice. And then later in 2001, you're talking 35, 36 years later, the last two men were brought to some sort of justice and one had already died at that, at that point. It takes a long time to exact justice when there's a black life. And why, Rebecca? Because black lives don't matter. Now, as James said, all of that is communicated. Let's go to Emmett Till, 1955, when he just offended a white woman. What happened to him? Right away, the white woman's husband and his half-brother, they lynched this 14-year-old boy. They tied a generator to his body and sunk him to the bottom of a river. And when that was found, it took 46 years for anyone to even be talked to. And to be honest with you, they were acquitted. Now, let's go to the Klansmen who were on the police force. Now, this is why policemen are so concerning for African Americans, because we know this history. In Mississippi, now you might have heard it, Rebecca, as Mississippi burning. This was a freedom summer when kids came down to Mississippi to help the black people register to vote and get jobs in white establishments. There were no black establishments to get a job. These three boys who were there on a mission to help the black people get registered were tracked down by the police. 
the Klan was involved, dressed in uniform. They took these four, three kids, and they put bullets in the back of their heads and buried them in a landfill. It was 41 years later before anyone actually was indicted. And even at that point, at somewhere along the line, about eight people were indicted for denying civil rights. So they served three to six years, and at the very end, the one gentleman, he was a reverend, killing. He orchestrated the entire deal. And one woman on the jury said she just couldn't bring it to herself to bring a preacher to an indictment. So he didn't go to jail until 41 years, and it even wasn't a murder charge, then it was manslaughter. All of this, as James has said, is communicated to blacks over time. Black lives don't matter. But offend a white person, it matters. Now, you talk about protests. Why? Because Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a Swiss-American psychiatrist, she identified stages of grief as denial, isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I think a lot of black people and the young people in the world in general were at the point where some of us are angry. And it's unfortunate because silent protests will get you arrested, will get fire hoses, and will get police dogs. You can't even do a silent protest. So all of this is translated all the way up to now in the history of black people. We realize the message is clear. Black lives don't matter. And you say... Is it making societal change? I'll say making change is hard. Human behavior is one of the hardest things to change. Change is often uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, but we have to examine it and work with it because we must remember why change is needed, and so we learn to do it better. Collectively, Rebecca, there's strength in numbers. As you express that, to me, it's heart-wrenching. But I had, and I'll share this, a moment of real uneducation and ignorance I had grown up in a diverse community in Southern California, and I had, you know, president of the multicultural club, et cetera, et cetera. I was part of the forced integration that occurred in the 1970s. And I went and attended a conference in the South on racism. And I remember standing in line, and I don't remember if who the speaker was, but I remember making my way up and saying, sir, isn't the injustices against of African-Americans, which is the term we use then, didn't that happen in the past? Aren't we okay now? In my life, it feels like we're all getting along together, and I, I'm not seeing this, and I, I don't understand. Now, I was just 20, 21 at that time, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, Honey, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening, and I could yep. give you millions of stories. And he... Yep. he he, uh, what he shared with me, I'll say, rocked my vision, rocked my idea of the world. And, and so I have two things I want to kind of go from here. And that our instinct, if we don't see it ourselves, if we don't experience things ourselves, whether we're talking about racism, whether we're talking about almost anything, we often discount it. But that's not how we learn about life and make change. And so I so appreciate this is Dr. Diane McAdams-Jones and James C. Jones who are joining us today as we're talking about it. One of the flashpoints in the community is about what has happened when the protests have turned violent. And James, I want to talk with you about that because in some sense, I am seeing people now disengage 
from embracing this idea of oh, oh, we have injustices against George Floyd because I've started seeing violence and now I don't like what I'm seeing with Black Lives Matter protests. Help us understand about that, how you feel about the that turn of events. Um, gosh, I, I want to say this kind of nicely, but like I, I don't have anything all that positive to say about people who want to try to disengage from the conversation on the value of black life because they see violence. To me, it's totally uh, disingenuous to point to any acts of violence during these protests as if the overwhelming majority of the thousands of protests all across this country, all across the world now, haven't been peaceful. If violence is a real concern to anyone, then it would stand to reason that the violence against black bodies for the last four centuries in the name of white supremacy would concern you significantly more because not only is that the greater injustice, but because the violence at these protests would not even have an opportunity to exist without the centuries long dispossession and dehumanization of black life. Like that wouldn't exist at all. So this isn't to say that you can't be upset or feel any kind of way about the violence at these protests because it's not okay. Like I'll agree with you that much, but to be more upset about that violence than what the black body has been subjected to over the last four centuries is disingenuous, it's hypocritical, and frankly, it's racist. Like, if the violence detracts from the message, then you probably weren't trying to hear it to begin with, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And, and it's okay that you're sharing this. This is why I wanted to turn to both of you and have this conversation because often these conversations are happening on social media. And, and what I share with people is if you want to learn, you're going to get a glimpse of something on social media, but you're not going to have a heart-to-heart conversation, which will help you understand perspectives and differences and really listen. And so these conversations to me are crucial. And I appreciate that you are, 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 are trusting us enough to have this conversation as honestly as we can as we talk about Black Lives Matter and its role of pro- protests and making uh, societal change. Uh, I, I'm going to go back to this again, the idea, uh, Dr. Jones, what do you say to Americans who have not experienced or witnessed racism or believe, like I did when I was a young girl, that racism largely had been addressed in the civil rights period of time. And I'll, I'll, for full disclosure, I am Latina. My mom is Mexican or was Mexican-American, and she grew up and with limitations because of prejudices that existed uh, in her time. So I have always been aware of racism, but not educated on it. So for those people who are saying, I don't see it, and in Utah, we have an even larger issue in that we're not diverse so we're often not aware of our own experiences or lack of therein. So, Dr. Jones, help you help me with this. How do you uh, address that challenge when I'm hearing people say, but I don't see it? Well, if you're in Utah, you just said it. That's probably why. All their friends are white. And when someone is mean or discriminates against each other in the same race, they just think they treated someone bad. They don't understand what discrimination is. But where I work, I have been the one chocolate drop, if you will, in my particular department. And I've even asked one or two people, why do you think there aren't any other uh, African-Americans or black people in Utah? Why do we just have 3% or less? 
And I was told uh, we invite people here that look like us and look like our students. Well, when someone, you ask a question and people are painfully honest with you, you're just going to have to accept the truth. I appreciate that because that makes full sense. The next time I brought the subject up, was, which was in the very same week, was at the hospital with some people I worked. And the person said, well, Diane, you know, if you don't like the way we live here, you're not a tree. You can move. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't move, but this came from, from a bishop's wife. So when people have that attitude, they typically are accustomed to be around, being around people like them. Now, I'm going to go further and say Webster's definition for racism includes prejudice, discrimination, antagonism directed against a person or people on the basis of their membership of a particular racial or ethnic group typically one that is a minority, marginalized, then a belief that a group is distinguished by its distinct characteristics as inferior to another. I have certainly seen that in my workplace, but you have to understand when people don't want to listen, because you understand me, Rebecca, listening is a skill. And if you can't or don't see racism as a problem, if you can't, can't or won't listen, then read a book. And some examples might be race talk, the conspiracy of silence, because what I see among white people in Utah, they are racist, but they don't realize they're racist. They really honestly don't, because it's not descriptive like that to them, because it's among themselves. And this is one reason why they've also expressed to me, and I totally understand it, is one reason why they don't go aggressively to bring in more people of another color, particularly not black people, because they don't want to have to hear about they've committed a discriminatory discriminatory act. And I understand that. But Race Talk by Daryl Sue, The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, Stamps by Jason Reynolds, Bias by Jennifer Eberhardt, and Religion of, of a Different Color by W. Paul Reed, who is a, an American... Uh, white man that's a professor at the University of Utah, he talked about the Mormons and how they were even told that they weren't even good enough to be with white people. And if you'll remember, they were pushed and shoved from pillar to post. Why? Discrimination. Why? Because they were different. Discrimination doesn't always have to be because of someone's color. Again, marginalization. They were marginalized. And when um, Mr. Uh, Romney, Mitt Romney, was running for president, if you might remember, there was a journalist, and I won't call his name because I'll murder it, but it was mentioned a couple times that now we've got the whitest white man running for president because the Mormons really had to seek whiteness themselves because of what? Discrimination. Another book, Everyone is African by Daniel Fairbanks. He's a Ph.D. over at uh, Utah Valley University. That book talks about how we are all African, every last one of us. But because white people don't know their history, they don't read and they don't listen in many instances, they don't want to hear that they came from African descendants because mitochondrial Eve is black. And the reason why all of us got fair skin, those of us that did, is because of moving away from the equator, had to put on clothes, we had less vitamin D, less melanin, and we just became mutants, basically, the very white skin. But when people don't read, they don't understand. And history is very important. Also, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin is also a good book to read. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, The Innocence Project, both of those are Internet accessible. And they show you the numbers of white people versus black people who are incarcerated and how many they have released 
with the Innocence Project because once we learned about DNA, we found a lot of people behind bars had no DNA at all in, in the evidence that was found the crime. And the bulk of those were African-American, but there were whites as well. Why do we have a discriminatory society? Because we are built and live in a racist society. When you discriminate by putting labels on people for the color of their skin, that makes you a race. And that makes us all, in a sense, somewhat of racist, we race-thinking people because that's how we're enculturated. So there's no other way for us to be, but you can't fix that, Rebecca, until you recognize it exists. And that's why bias, understanding, is very good to read about. It's very good to be in classes to understand why we have biases and how we can bring them to the surface. And once we can get them there, we can get rid of some of that cognitive dissonance and we can deal with some of that bias. It doesn't mean it's going to change you and make you perfect, because I don't think that's going to happen. But if you're aware of it, if I know that I don't like chocolate popsicles, then I'm not going to buy them. But if I really don't understand that that's something I don't like, and I'm not checking the labels to see if there's chocolate in it, I'll continue to do it. So if I'm aware and I can make myself understand that I have a bias against A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and I need to work with that because I'm going to be working with people and I need to make the place I work a comfortable, comfortable place to work and so that people aren't depressed and staying at home because they hate to come to work because they're afraid they're going to offend somebody. That's the other thing. We've got to talk about issues. We can't go away and hide, and we can't start feeling bad and pulling away from people because they offended. Now, I'm the, the worst person for that because I will tell you if you offended me, and you brought that up initially. But I will exactly tell people if they offended me. But all I'm saying is listening is a skill, and you have to have that skill. Mm. Dr. Diane McAdams-Jones, a professor at Utah Valley University, um, thank you so much for those resources that you have shared. Uh, we're also joined by James C. Jones. He is a creative mm-hmm. entrepreneur, a musician, a podcaster, a voiceover artist. You'll hear his voice and, and realize why he is also successful in, in that field as well. We have just a couple minutes left together. And James, I wanted to say something, uh, you know, I... Um, my husband is a historian, and he teaches about the role of newspapers and television played during the civil rights in the 1960s, that it, when things were televised, the fire hoses on the children, um, you know, whether it was the church bombings, there was a whole large portion of the United States that was not as aware like the people in the South were of what was happening, and it helped turn the tide as people became aware of what was happening, that we have now civil war monuments that are coming down. We have corporations that are renaming their products that had racist ties. NASCAR even banned Confederate flags. Things are happening around the world. James, do you see this as a turning point in history? Um, okay. So, again, I want to be a little careful in trying to address this because I I don't want to get too excited. Like, this is, without a doubt, the largest civil rights moment for black lives in our world's history. And uh, I think it's okay for me to name that while still also acknowledging that I think it's too early to say because all of these things that that you named, companies and brands getting rid of their racist ties or imagery, NASCAR banning Confederate flags, like, these are all... Uh, These are all token gestures. 
Like it's nice. It's nice that the monuments are coming down, and it's nice that the uh, companies and brands are getting rid of their racist imagery. But at best, this is treating a symptom of the problem, and that and that is only happening because that symptom right now is aggravated. What we're talking about the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and the Mott Arbery, like just the ones in recent history, and a global protest in the middle of a global pandemic. And for the NFL and NASCAR and other companies and brands to just simply reconsider the symbols and imagery that they use, like that's not an appropriately proportional response to me. And nor do these gestures really adequately address what needs addressing. These aren't things that we are asking for in the present moment. All these things were things that we've been asking for for a while, but that's not exactly what we're asking for in the present moment. So before I can say we're at a turning point, I want to see meaningful change happen where we're asking for it. And that's in law enforcement right now. I want to see, I, I want to see an end to broken windows policing. I want to see an end to the militarization of our police. I want to see an end to for-profit policing. I want to see more and better training, longer training. I want to see a limit to the use of force, more community oversight and police accountability. I want to see a lot of things. Like there are causes that all of these companies and brands can support uh, to get this stuff done. And I want to see energy directed in that direction. Until then, merely taking down Confederate statues and getting rid of Aunt Jemima, that's not, that's not going to do much. That's going to ring hollow to me. We're not at a turning point until we're getting what we're actually asking for at this moment in time, which is an end to the systemic and disproportionate killings of Black people by law enforcement officials. Mm. And you listed many action items. I know that our listeners often wonder, what is it that I can do? And Mm -hmm. as I first hear from Dr. Jones and from you is to listen, to learn about things that you might not have experienced before, to believe people when they express that they're in pain, that they feel like their lives and other people's lives are in danger because we haven't addressed the issues in the criminal justice system like we need to get involved to make change for your community, have the courage to speak up about your passion for greater justice for all and stay committed when it's difficult. If there's one thing that we can see from the 400 years of institutional racism that has existed in our country is that the blacks have continued to push forward, trying to get the justice that they deserve so we can weather those difficulties. We could talk for hours and I wish that we could. And I'm honored that you were able to join me today, James C. Jones and Dr. Diane McAdams Jones. And I hope that those who joined us today will be able to listen with open hearts and have more open conversations with the people of color that are in your community, because there may not be a lot in Utah, but they're there. And we, it's up to us to seek that information out and learn about what role we can play. So James Jones and Dr. Jones, thank you for being willing to join us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Thank you. Thank you.